It's great to be here. Good morning, everyone. And uh, we're going to fly through. I always worry that I'm going to run out of time, and then I go so quickly that I have more time than I know what to do with. But we will work through this. We're in Chapter 7 of Luke. Let me just offer us a prayer before we start. Gracious God, we ask that you would come and be in our midst in a way that quickens our heart to want to really be in your word. Lord, may what I share be your thoughts, not my own opinions. May what I share be true to the gospel and to the scripture that you have placed before us this morning. Lord, I also ask that it would be not just good information, um, but information that we could take with us that will help transform us to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at uh, Jesus' continued ministry. He's been in uh, Gesserit, or Ges yeah, I want to make sure I say this. Yeah, Genereset, Genereset, thank you. And um, he's been teaching and healing in that area, and now he is going to go into uh, Capernaum and do some teaching there. Now, if you looked at the Sea of Galilee, which is all of where Jesus' ministry is, Capernaum is over in the northwest corner. So for you, it's a northwest corner. And that's where he's moved to continue to do his work in his ministry. And um, it begins by saying that when Jesus finished all his sayings, and if you look at the first verse of that, after Jesus had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Here's the deal. Jesus speaks the truth of scripture. So it's not like he's not going to do any more speaking. It's just saying that whatever he shares, it's based on the word of God. It's based on his fulfilling what God had called him to do. So his, his um, teaching is to say, as the word of God, Jesus was sharing that. And then uh, Luke goes ahead and he identifies people in this chapter, which I think is kind of fun, makes it real, makes us really think about it. We know he's in Capernaum. He's going down to Nan. And, um, and then there's some people in this. First is the centurion. And then you have uh, a widow. You have a... Pharisee, who has a name Simon, and of course you have um, the woman, um, the sinful woman, which is a nice euphemism, by the way, we'll talk about later, who anoints Jesus' feet. So you have both characters or people, and you also have places. Uh, Luke likes to do that because he likes you to be with Jesus when you're reading this later on and when you're experiencing this. So that's how he does this. So as we begin, it kind of sets this up, and um, he enters Capernaum, and as he does so, um, a centurion there had a slave who was very ill, and he sends folks out um, to address Jesus and say, I've got this sick person, I really need your help. Now, what we know about the centurion is that he is a person of economic means. Um, that would be simply by his title, his title says, I am a person who's in charge of at least 100 other uh, leaders, and I'm a person of influence. And they were also given an income so that they could use it at their discretion to do what they please. And normally they would you know, try and, and help the community in which they served. And that's exactly what this centurion had done. If you have read this, have you all read this chapter? Be honest with me, you've read it. Good, okay, good. <laughs> because it could take the whole time to read all these verses. But he sends his people before him, and he, who does he send? He sends Jewish leaders. Now, a centurion is a Roman uh, soldier. He is a Gentile. He is not a Jew. And yet he has the type of relationship that he can send Jewish leaders. How is he able to do that? Well, we learn about that. He's able to do that because he's helped them. They go and they say, Jesus, we really want you to help the centurion who has this very sick slave. I'll talk about the slave in a moment. But the, the subject really is a centurion. He has done wonderful things. He helped build our synagogue. He supports us. He's there for us. 
please help him out. And the centurion knew, here's, here's some Jewish leaders coming to a rabbi, a Jew, and they, he will listen to them. And they will speak on my behalf for my servant slave. Now, the word that he uses for his beloved servant in Greek is um, a word which has intimacy. Paz is the word that's used, and it's this intimacy, this beloved, as if you would love a child, as if it were one of your own family. And that, the wording that's used is a demonstration, again, of who the centurion was. So he comes and he asks for this, and he sends these Jewish leaders, he cares about this, and the centurion, this is very, very interesting, and when you get to your small groups and you look at your notes there, the centurion never meets Jesus, but he knows that Jesus is who Jesus has claimed to be, that he is the kingdom present, that he is one who comes to heal, that comes to teach the good news. He is confident, and yet he never meets him. On your little questions um, that you'll see later, I think, do you ever have people in your life, because I've had people in my life who go, well, you know, if I saw Jesus, I would probably believe, but you know, I don't see Jesus around here. How might you respond to that? The centurion has never met Jesus, but what has he experienced, even though he's never met him? What has he seen that compels him to say, I know that you can heal my servant? So think about that. Think about the way in which we share the gospel with other people, especially those who are skeptical. So Jesus does exactly that. He comes and he heals um, and he, and again, the centurion has these people speaking for him. He goes, you know, whatever I say people do, if I give a command, they'll do it. There's an understanding of the leadership there that says, this is what I do, and I know you're able to do that also. And Jesus is amazed by the fact that centurion hasn't come, but has such faith. And he says this thing, this is for all of us, I think. Um, Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I will tell you not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now that's a reference to the crowd. I want you to pay attention because a crowd continues to follow Jesus everywhere he goes. It's as if they don't want to miss out. So he not only has his disciples, but there's a crowd of people always following, always watching, always seeing what Jesus is doing. A, a very, very good point to that. And so then um, he, he said, um, such faith I just haven't seen. And when they went back to the centurion to say they had met with Jesus, the slave was healed, absolutely healed. So that Jesus did not even have to go to be where the servant was, where the slave was. Now, people are very worried. We had a great conversation. It was a good point. People are frustrated. They said, we can't even pray for people. You can always pray for people. We can't lay hands on people so that we can't heal them. Mm, Jesus didn't lay his hands on this centurion, and he was healed. Do not assume that you have to do something spectacular or amazing in order to have your prayers heard. It's not your work. It's God's work. The prayers of a righteous person are heard, and righteous means we're trying to do the right thing. So never assume you who are on the prayer team, Ruth and your group, I am so grateful. You who are deacons who pray, I am so grateful. You don't always get to see the people face to face. You don't always get to touch them. But you have faith that when you pray, God will hear your prayers. And I want to encourage you to always pray for others and, and do not get caught up in if I just do it correctly. Uh, God is the one who does everything correctly. We just, you know, we're kind of like fumbling along, trying to do the best we can, and God honors us because of our sincerity and our faith, okay? All right, so that's the first of the four narratives. We were going through these four narratives. I don't, is it better, Terry, where are you? Is it better if I ask at the end if there are questions or if I ask as we go along? Okay, questions at the end, and you folks will come up to the microphone. This is all, you know, it's been so long, I've forgotten how to do this almost. <laughs> okay, let's move on. But you're good? You've got that? Okay, faith. 
So then the next thing is that soon afterwards, and that's important because Luke likes to do things, again, he likes names, he likes places, he likes sequence. So he's going, okay, the next thing he's doing is soon afterwards, so it's the next story he wants us to know about, he went to a town called Nahum, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. Now that's important because Nahum is about um, 25 miles from Capernaum, which would take over a day. They did a lot of walking, no big deal. They just kind of kept moving. Um, but it would take them over a day to get there. And so Jesus goes, and all these people are following, and he comes to this place. And this is where we're going to hear about the widow and her son. So now he gets there, and he's, he's entering the gate. Out comes a funeral procession, or funeral party, not in the celebratory sense, but a large group of folks coming out. So you have a large group coming into the gate, a large group coming out. The gate is central to any town. And back then you would have walled, you know, walled cities. And so obviously this is walled. You have this gate and Jesus is coming in and here this funeral procession is coming out. And he notes that um, in this uh, town, a man had died and was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And again, and with her was a large crowd. He likes to tell us things that are important. There, there are people to bring um, witness to this. The widow, again, is a subject of this little narrative. In the same way that the centurion was, even though it's the slave that needs the help, and even though here, it's the son who is dead. Now, if you're a widow, you're in trouble in, in those kinds of times because you don't have anyone to care for you. Normally, your child might do that. Now her only son is gone. So she is a person without means. She is the, she is the lowest of the low in that sense. Why do we think in Acts when the elders were trying to preach the gospel, the disciples, the apostles said, we've got to figure this out. We need, we need deacons to help us out because there are people in great need. They need to do the caring of who the children and the widows. That was, that was a question for you. That wasn't a trick question. <laughs> so the children and the widows, they need someone. So you know that this is a person who is, who is left empty. She has nothing. But in the tradition of the Jewish community, you would always have a funeral. And you would have um, the person being carried out who had died and they're going out to bury them. You have whatever friends or relatives you have. And then you have mourners. They're called professional mourners. Um, years ago, we went to a service in Sweet Grace Press. I don't have permission, so Grace, forgive me. But she was weeping. She said, I would have done really well in the first century to be hired as a professional mourner because she just is emotive in, in the most caring way. But that's what that was their job. So they're crying. They're weeping. She's a widow. She's without means. And they're all coming into the gate, which not only is the crowd that Jesus has brought with him, not only the crowd of the funeral folks who are coming in, but at the gate is where everything of importance happens. So it's both essential and symbolic. And so Jesus sees this widow, and he focuses on her. And the reference here, if I just want you to look really, really quickly, in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her. So the Lord, his reference as being Lord, I'm gonna move this a little closer to me. His reference to being Lord is important. He wasn't called rabbi. Uh, to be Lord is the Lord who comes um, to the brokenhearted as referred to in Israel. And so again, Luke is using language to help us understand that this is the Lord of the Old Testament who comes to the brokenhearted. And then Jesus says this very strange, he does two things that are just totally inappropriate uh, for the culture and for the times, is he tells first the woman not to weep. So stop crying. I'm like, 
stop crying, why would you do that? And not only that, but you have the professional mourners and everybody else who are mourning loudly because that's what you do, that's part of that grieving process. And he's saying, stop, stop weeping. Again, that goes against even scripture. Scripture, crying and weeping is a blessing. And it's referred to in Isaiah, it's referred to, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And here's this comforting moment. Jesus said, I want you to stop weeping because what you're weeping over is no longer going to be relevant, right? Stop weeping. And then he lays his hand on a dead person. That's the other thing you're not supposed to do. You never touch the dead because it means you're unclean. So the same is no crying aloud in baseball. If you've ever watched that movie, A League of Their Own. See, the women are all nine. It's a great, it's a great um, story. And she's one of the players is crying, and the, and the manager goes, there's no crying in baseball. You know, it's kind of, and so I always think of this when Jesus said, stop crying. Don't weep anymore. I'm like, what? And then he touches this dead body. In the tradition, you would be unclean. You'd have to go be purified. Nobody could touch you. Nobody could be around you. They would make a circle around you because you are unclean. So remember a few weeks ago when Jack preached on the Good Samaritan and the priest and the Levi kind of just skirted around that? Uh, one is it would be costly to them because if you're a priest, you've got to do priestly du duties. You can't touch blood, and especially you can't touch a dead person. They're not sure if he's alive or dead. Can't take that chance. The same with the Levite. It would affect their work. It would affect what they were able to do going forward. Now, that may be selfish. That may be um, all the things that we think about, but how often do we rationalize, well, I really can't do that because the cost of doing this might be something else. Jesus only cares about doing what is needful and giving hope to this widow is what's needful. So he tells her, don't cry. And then he touches the dead and he raises him up. And the young man, I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. I just think that's a wonderful visual, you know, here's your son. I'm giving, I'm giving, not only am I giving life to him, I'm giving life back to you. You're no longer alone. And as he does this, um, the response of the people is both fearful and glorifying. So they are, they are you know, I think I think I would probably be shaken if somebody was dead and got raised, I, you know, physically right while I was there. That might shake me. But I hopefully will also realize that it is a God thing, that it is a miracle, and the people did that. And I think, again, here's a good example of who we are, even as we want to believe or as we believe or as we continue to grow in our faith, there are times when we are seized with fear. I don't know about this. It's still scary. I don't know if I could share my faith. I don't know if I could pray for this person. I don't know if I can, you know, give in the way that God wants me to. But at the same time, thanks be to God for the way in which I see God working in the lives of others and hopefully working in my life too. So they, they are honest with their fear and they're also glorifying God. And so, um, they said, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. The word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. So here he's gone from Capernaum, Nam is south of there, and um, goes back up. And then the disciples of John come to him, and that's the next section. So first we have two healings, and now we have a question. John the Baptist comes, not himself, but he sends once again, he sends his disciples, and they ask the question, are you the one that we've been waiting for, or should we look for another? And um, when they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come? Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. 
That's an important thing. Jesus is busy. He's not just hanging out. What Jesus spent those three years in incredibly intentionally <laughs> busy in, in many ways. And I don't mean busy as in just doing busy work. I meant that he had a purpose and a plan, and he took his time seriously. He also took rest seriously. But here he's been healing people, touching people. There's this sense of presence that he wants to demonstrate. And they come and they ask, um, why are you really the one? And Jesus said, tell him what you've seen. And I want to pause here for a second. Why would they ask that question of Jesus? Let's think back. If you look at your notes here, the doubts by John the Baptist are likely based on the absence of judgment by Jesus. So what did John the Baptist, it's not a trick question, <laughs> what did John the Baptist do when he came and began to proclaim to the people you need to do what? Repent and be baptized because someone is coming after me who's greater than I am. I want to get you ready to receive the one who is coming. Judgment is coming. You need to repent. You need to be ready. You need to do this. And then Jesus comes, and Jesus is not speaking repentance. He's not speaking judgment. He's touching lives. He's sharing the good news. He's healing people. He's doing the things. And John is just a little confused because, doggone it, I told him judgment was coming. And why aren't you, you know, emotionally and spiritually beating up these people to try and get them to change? That's, that's the GN translation there. But I think there's a real sense of that, that if you felt like this is what I'm supposed to do, and the next person that you're doing it for comes along and doesn't do any of the things that you thought they were coming to do or that you've been doing and you think they should carry on. So John is, is vexed by this. He's curious by this. He's asking this question. And then Jesus um, talks to them and tells them what he's done. By the way, there are two disciples. You always need two people uh, to be witnesses. Not, one will not do. You always need two. So two have come to Jesus, which validates a true concern that they want to know. And then uh, those two will go back and they will confirm what they've heard. And so Jesus then lists what he's done. And he makes these claims. This is number three of your little uh, notes here. He uses all the references in Isaiah to talk about validating himself as a Messiah and what the Messiah would do. He also uses Sharak uh, that's listed in here. But he has six claims. The blind see, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news. This is the kingdom of God present. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is demonstrating this is God's presence breaking into history. And so as Jesus is teaching them and giving them the good news, there are references that they would know that go back to Isaiah that would let them know this is the Messiah. Now, for you and me, if you grew up in the church, you cut your teeth on reading scripture and and knowing it. But if you grew up in the Jewish tradition, you would, you would definitely know it. This is your job. Your job is to know it, to learn it, to breathe it, to have it just infused in your body so that it's part of who you are. And so they would know these things. So Jesus confirms his ministry, and then he does something that's very interesting. Now, and this is why it's Jesus and not me. Uh, because if somebody was asking, well, are you really who you say you are? I would, mm, I'm like, well, who are you to ask? And well, how much work have you done? And I mean, I, I'm just kind of snarky, guys. What can I say? But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes back and he says these things, and these are important. Um, he began to speak to the crowd about John because he wanted them to know um, 
I've done these things, and blessed is, is anyone who does not take offense at what I've done. And then he begins to say, when Jesus, John's messengers had gone, this is verse 24, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the desert to look at? And he goes, a reed shaken in the wind, whatever. Why did you, what did you go out to see? He asked that three times. And again, in scripture, even twice is very important. So oftentimes, Jesus will be speaking to someone like to Martha, 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 or to Mary, 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 or, or barely, barely, for sure, for sure. It's repeated because it's important. Three times he asked him, what did you go out to see? Did you not go out to see presence of God's kingdom that is beginning to come, to beginning to break in. And, um, and he said, I tell you, um, more than even a prophet, uh, more than someone in soft robes, more than someone who, um, who you would think lives in luxury and, and two palaces, what did you go to see? I tell you, um, it was even more than a prophet. This is the one of, about whom it is written. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And then he goes on to talk about who John, he, goes, he said, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And I'll reference that just again in a second. So John has had questions, doubts in a sense. Are you really the one? You're not talking about judgment. Hellfire and brimstone is not in your vocabulary right now. But Jesus said, no, go back and tell them what you do see me doing. I am healing people. I'm touching people. I'm bringing them the good news. I'm ministering to the poor. Go and tell them that. But do not forget that John had a vital and significant role. And then he affirms who John is. And when he references no greater um, human has been born to a mother, than this person. We're thinking, well, what about Mary? <laughs> but he is the prophetic word that prepares people to hear, to repent, to be ready for the Messiah that brings salvation. So Jesus raises John up. Boy, that's a leader, folks. Even if you get criticized, you're going to look at the people for who you serve along with, and you're going to see the good that they're doing. You're going to raise that up. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And then he he turns to the people and he said, um, and all the people who heard this, including the tax collectors, acknowledged the justice of God because they had been baptized with John's baptize, or with John's baptism. So those who knew they needed repentance were the ones who repented. Now the tax, now the tax collector says, but guess who didn't? The, the, what we would call the church leaders, the Pharisees. Um, and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. And Jesus goes on to say, and what will I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he is a demon and I come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It doesn't matter your behavior. If people are not for you, it's not going to be okay. So something's wrong with you. You don't eat. You wear weird clothes. You eat like insects. You do all these, you know, you, you must be possessed of the devil. Oh, and you, Jesus, don't you know you're hanging out with the biggest sinners in the whole world and you're drinking with them and you're eating with them and you're doing deep whenever you eat and drink. We'll see this in the next um, section. That is intimacy. That is the most intimate thing you can do is to sit and break bread together. And Jesus is saying you are vexed either way. You either don't like it because we're fasting or you don't like us because we're enjoying the kingdom present. And so he talks about this, and then he says this last word, and it's vexed a couple of people. Nevertheless, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Wisdom is meaningful God. God is going to do God's work and bring about the presence of his kingdom. 
whether you're on that road or not, that will not stop Jesus from doing his work, that will not stop God from being the one who gives to us the knowledge of what we need. And so he ends with that. And uh, so it's a really, really good, I think a good word for us because John, like most of us, if we're honest, we question. I mean, I get up every morning, I have questions for God. He's really patient with me. It's like, do you not have a new question for me, Aunt Jan? Um, and it, part of it is like, I, I struggle. There are things that I struggle with, but I'm so glad that, that I can say, this is what I struggle with, but I can do no other but to follow you, Lord Jesus, because I have no other option that's any better. It's really the only option. But thank you, thank you, Lord, that I could just ask, really? Okay, all right. Last section, my favorite section. This is a story of a sinful woman who is forgiven. Sinful woman is a euphemism for a prostitute. Um, just in case you hadn't figured that out. Um, that's saying. So this Pharisee, Simon, invites Jesus to dinner. Now, as I said before, being invited over for a meal is very, very important. Now, I'm looking out, and I've been in um, your, some of your homes here, and I know that you have uh, the gift of hospitality that is, like, on steroids. You guys are, like, gracious and, and so, so kind and all these things. And in that culture, you need to be incredibly gracious giving. So you invite someone over. Again, it's, it's um, a nice thing to do, but it also has significance in the fact of this is what you do when you are close to someone, when you are honoring someone. And Jesus being invited in would be a guest of honor. But this is what happens. Um, he comes in and there's a woman in the city who was a sinner, having heard that he was eating in the Pharisee's house. Now, the homes are not like ours where we close doors. The good news is now everything's open, but we close doors. Uh, it's not like that. You would have a gate um, that would be open, and your home would be pretty open. Uh, one of the parables we talk about, um, the prodigal son. The prodigal son, everybody in the community would know what's going on because the community is an open community. So when the young man says to his father, give me my inheritance, it's not just his father who's embarrassed. The entire community is embarrassed for the father. How could this come out of our community? So it's known. It's not like she's just kind of figured this out. Everyone would know that Jesus is going to Pharisee's house. It's the kind of courtyard openness that this woman could go right in, which is what she did. And she goes to the feet of Jesus. Now, in those times when you ate, you reclined at the table. We didn't do it like chairs we do now. You would recline at the table. You would have a common bowl, your bread. You would take your bread, dip it in the food, and eat. So everyone's around. Your feet are behind you. Feet are like not there. Feet are not great because they went in places that they shouldn't go, like they couldn't just stay in, in what was Jewish territory, you know, because you had Gentiles around, so you'd walk, your feet would get unclean, and then it's all dusty. And, and so you, normally you would walk in and a non-Jew servant or slave would wash your feet because you never wanted to touch feet. Um, but it was important to wash them. It was a ritual, but it was also hospitality. So this woman walks in, and she's at the feet of Jesus. This is the key. She is overwhelmed and begins to weep. Now, with what is she overwhelmed? Hang on to that thought. And as she begins to weep, her tears weep, uh, fall upon Jesus' feet. She takes down her hair not something you would do. She takes down her hair and she washes, she washes with her tears his feet and then wipes it with her hair. Now, a prostitute normally wears a, a oil or ointment or lotion uh, in a little jar around her neck um, because it would, um, it's a perfume and it makes things smell nicer. And when you're having clients, it's a good thing to have. And so that's something that she would have with her. That's, that's how you know who this person is. She takes that and she then anoints him with that. 
she does this incredible act of love. She's not doing it to gain favor. She's not doing it to earn her, you know, place. She's doing it because she is overwhelmed with love and compassion because she knows she's loved by him in a way that probably nobody in her entire life has ever loved her very differently than anyone. Now, then you have Simon, Simon the Pharisee, who do what I'm sure none of us ever do, look at people and judge them. Never, never, never. But that's exactly, exactly what he does. He goes, well, what kind of a prophet is he that he doesn't know who this woman is? I mean, honestly, besides that she took down her hair, you would never do that. She was that, just everything about it. He's thinking this. If you look at that scripture, verse 39. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw it. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, teacher, he replied, speak. And then Jesus does this parable. So Simon has judged poorly, right? He's just assumed everything about this woman is bad. Not only that, but he's made a judgment on Jesus. Obviously, you're not a prophet, or you would have known who she was, and, and the conclusion would be not allowed that to happen. So Jesus tells this parable. If you flip over your little paper now. Uh, because it, it's in, it's a, um, I'm a number four there. He tells this parable about forgiving two debts using a structure of a parable that is easy to remember. That's happened twice. It happened before. If you look up ahead, you could study that in your group, that there's a, a progression of what's happening and it kind of circles back. So uh, you see that you have in the debtor, you have the debtors, you have a money lender, you have one debtor. What do they owe? You have the other debtor. You have the debtors together and the money lender. And so you're just thinking, okay, here's the scenario. What does it mean? And, um, and Jesus said, okay, they both owed debts. One of them owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Who's going to appreciate the lender when they forgive both debts? Who's going to appreciate them more? And Simon goes, well, you know, the, the one who is forgiven more. And uh, Jesus says, good answer. <laughs> That's a good judgment. So your first one was not so good. Your next one was much better. And then he just lays it out and he said, her sins are many, but she's been forgiven much. But when I came into your home, the first thing you should have done is wash my feet. You didn't. By the way, you didn't put me at the head of the table. You didn't anoint my head with oil, another thing that you would do in that culture when you had a guest, especially an honored guest. None of the things that your hospitality would normally require of you did you do. I can't help but think that the Pharisee thought I'm doing Jesus a big favor. That's enough. Now, we have a good mission partner who's on the board of Alma Barnett. That's our Kenya mission group. And a while ago, we had, it's been a few years now, but we had her over to our house for dinner with some of our mission commission people that were available. And I put her at the head of the table because she was our guest. She said, oh my gosh, you put me at the head of the table like I'm an honored guest. I go, well, actually, you kind of are. You know? But I think those simple things that we do show the kind of hospitality that we should show even strangers, those who we don't know. No big deal, we invite over somebody we know. It's a big deal when we invite over those who we don't know, but are probably very needful. So Jesus shares with him, um, she's been forgiven a, a lot because she had a lot to be forgiven. But you know, when you don't need a lot of forgiveness, you think you're not necessary, I don't appreciate it. I think wherever we are, we should appreciate this. In high school, you know, I kind of vacillated in and out of um, a church in, in college especially. But in high school, you know, I was still kind of going. And um, 
and into my freshman year of high school before I launched um, in the fall in a Bible study, college Bible study, and a young woman stood up and she said, I really thank God that I have never done drugs, I've never had sex, I don't smoke, I don't drink, and God has just really saved me, and, and, um, and I'm just so grateful. I'm just so grateful that, um, that God, you know, has, has spared me from all this. And there was a young man in the room that I had actually known in high school, and he was a couple years older than I, but he spoke next, and he said, I am so incredibly, incredibly thankful to God because even though I have tried probably every drug out there and have been uh, sexually promiscuous, would be a nice word for it, um, have smoked, have drank, have cussed, but Jesus came to me and my life has been transformed. And I can never thank God enough. Well, they're both thankful. But I've never forgotten that young man. Number one, in a Baptist church, when you didn't say whatever, if you had a mouthful, you just, I mean, that was unheard of. And here he was just being so honest. I was so broken. But I found Jesus, and I'm so grateful. I'm like, I, I don't want to do what he did, but I want his gratitude. Uh, a book, The Soul Keepers by John Ortberg, a lot of it has to do with an interview and learning from Dallas Willard, but um, he talks about a soul of gratitude rather than entitlement. See, that Simon the Pharisee, I think, felt very entitled. I'm entitled to have Jesus over. I've, I've arrived. You know, the centurion could have felt entitled. John the Baptist could have felt entitled to know, why are you not preaching hellfire and brimstone? But the gratitude is what permeates through so much of the other story. The centurion, indeed. John, who continued until he was arrested soon after that, to prepare people for Jesus. The widow who has hope restored to her. The, Samar the woman behind Jesus, the sinner. Her grace is not because of what she did for Jesus. It's because when she walked in knowing he was there, was overwhelmed and knowing she was forgiven. That's grace. It's not what we do. It's who Jesus is for us and how Jesus changes us. It's God's work, not our work. Tyrion's a great example of that. He didn't do anything, boss a few people around. But he had faith. That woman had faith. She had a gratitude in her soul. I pray that we would have that same kind of gratitude. So the theme of this is God's freely offered love, accepted as an unearned grace. That's what God wants for all of us. Oh, I have a few minutes. May I, are there questions? Yes, come on down. You know, with your mask on, tell me, <laughs> tell me who you are just to make sure I don't mess this up. Thank you. My name is Cheryl. I have two questions. Okay. The first one about John the Baptist, when he was saying, are you the one? Well, I'm thinking back to when John baptized Jesus. Mm -hmm. The heavens open up. My son, this is my son, my beloved son, who I am well pleased. So why does John later on say, are you the one when he baptized him? Well, that's the one do question. Do you want to answer that one? Sure. Okay. Let me, if, unless they're related. Okay. Um, no, they're so, not. Well, you, you, <laughs> thanks, Carol. Okay. So here's the thing, Cheryl. We, um, it, it's an excellent question, and I think we all think about that. Well, John, you baptized Jesus, and you saw the Holy Spirit and everything else, but you know distance sometimes, and when you have an expectation of somebody, and they're not doing what you kind of thought they were coming to do, because that's what you prepared the people for, then I think you do have doubts, and I think he just wanted to be assured. Every once in a while, we just 
want to be assured. Have you ever, I, I, you know, Lord, just let me know that you're there. And then in hindsight, I normally figure it out. Um, seldom do I at the moment. But so I think, yes, he did baptize him. He believed he was the one. He believed my, I am unworthy to tie uh, the, untie the laces of his shoes, which by the way, again, a Jew would not do. You'd have a servant do that because it's your feet. I'm not even worthy of that. So he had such faith. But then he's wondering because he's not hearing about the judgment that it does talk about. Jesus is coming to judge and it's not happening here. But Jesus is saying, no, the feast is happening right now. This is a party time. This is a time to celebrate that the poor release, the lame walk, the blind see. And so that's it. So it's, it, it, you can do both. You can have faith and question. really asking the question of himself. Where did I go wrong? Like, you know, if he says, my expectations were different. Well, maybe, or maybe he really is just saying, so Jesus, tell me who you are again. Okay. Tell me what your role is. And so, okay. um, I got that. Yeah. Okay. What's your second question? Okay. So this one we just covered where the, the prostitute is in the Pharisee's home. Now you did explain how it's a not a home like we are used to, but I'm thinking this Pharisee who is so high up there and he's so privileged, how did this prostitute get into his home? It's a pretty open arena. So uh, it doesn't tell us how she got in there, but it would not be uncommon that people would stand. Okay, so uh -huh. here's, let's, let's say that this is the uh, low table that we're eating at and we're the guests. Not unusual for the community to be able to see what's going on. She just got a little brave and walked a little closer. That's not unusual. Um, it's not unusual for people to kind of gather that way. It's an open forum, so she probably easily could slip in there. I know, and what we really want to say is that she probably knew his house well because that would make us feel really good about not liking him. But it doesn't say that in that scripture, so I don't want to go there. Okay. You know? well, but I she can't. It is an open, you know, we just yeah. don't think about that. Yeah. Uh, but again, if you look, and that's why I use the, the example of the prodigal son, because telling the story, all those who are hearing Jesus would be nervous straight away because they would know that the whole town would know what's going on. It's like the person who comes in the middle of the night and knocks on the gate to be let in. The entire community would hear that. That's how close they were. And you would be shamed if you didn't offer that hospitality, which would include, by the way, drink and food. There you go. Okay. I, this routine is, is great, but I wanted to ask that question right when you were talking about it. No, um, thanks for... So we may want to change our little... Well, I'm glad you remembered thing. it. Normally I have great questions and they just fly away. So that's why, away. yes. That's okay, thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? You guys? Hi there. So it's, it's more like a question. It's something that came out right now after her question, following up question about John when he's asking whether Jesus is the one. It came to my mind also another part in the Bible when somebody very important to Jesus also asked, hey, what's going on? Why haven't you done what you're supposed to do? It's his own mother at the wedding when she says, hey, Jesus, do this. And he's like, it's not my time. So I was wondering if the both scenes have to do whether they were actually doubting Jesus or if actually was their own moment of realizing who Jesus was. And every person that Jesus met faced the truth and became believers even more than they were before once they faced Jesus in that moment. So I was wondering if the mother of Jesus had her moment of realization and said, do everything he says, because he then, she realized exactly that that was his moment to begin. And then John asking, is it you? It demonstrated that he's also a human. He wasn't perfect. He didn't have enough, all the faith may be required to believe in Jesus. And Jesus was testing him right there. So when he asked, 
are you the one? He says, what, what do you think? Right? Mm -hmm. So like everybody had their own moment, even his own mother, even John the Baptist. Like we all will have our own moment, whether we are believers from when we are born or when we are raised Christians. We all come to face who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. Something like that, maybe? Yeah, I think that's a, 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 a good point. I, I think the mother, I think Jesus' mother, um, progressive revelation, you know, maybe she's thinking back when the angel visited her and said, boy, and said, so Jesus, do something. But this is hospitality. What mother wouldn't say, fix this because people need, they need their wine. They need, you know, that's, that's a mom thing also. That's a, but um, I think with John, yeah, maybe it's an affirmation. Am I still doing the right thing? But I think um, also for John, as with us, there are times when I think we struggle with, is, can, are you really who you say you are? And, um, or should we look for another? Is there, is there somebody else? And I think part of that happens when we're wondering what were our, you know, what was John's expectation of Jesus? It was very, very clear, if you listen to John, that judgment is coming, so get ready. Um, and that's why Jesus said, you know, all the people who are really sinful were baptized. We're ready. Um, they were, they repented. Um, but those who thought they'd arrived didn't. And they will still be held accountable. But what John wasn't ready for, didn't maybe anticipate, is that Jesus came. The kingdom of God is both present right now. That's where you see the healing, the porting care of you know, all those kinds of things, as well as it's not quite complete. We still have poor, we still have lame, we still have blind, we still need to proclaim until Christ comes again. But I think the honesty of John, I think he honestly wanted to know, am I doing the right thing and am I doing it? Someone asked yesterday, well, Jesus can do so much, why didn't he get John out to prison? And I thought, well, John's work was kind of done when Jesus arrived. It's kind of a scary thought. <laughs> but um, John's work was kind of done. And, uh, and we'll meet John the Baptist. And never forget, our story's not over when it's over here, folks. Our story's not over. Thank you. Other questions? All right, ladies, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May God lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, go out with gratitude. Amen.